I bring Sutek's gift of Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. Welcome, everybody, to episode 135 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which stars David and Ben. And I am Ben, and he is David. And we are in the Christmas season here. We are the Christmas season, the season of goodwill and joy to all men. Gift giving. So to mark the beginning of the <laughs> gift giving season, we've decided to mash together two things, one of which is the 12 days of Christmas, which of course, technically speaking, is the 12 days after Christmas. True enough, yes. That's one of the things that the pedant in me always finds irritating, is that actually Christmas... Christmas Day begins Christmas. Mm-hmm. It doesn't end Christmas. Mm-hmm. There's like 12 days after Christmas until you get to a bit So Anyway. But whatever. you can listen to this podcast, you know, after Christmas if you really want to be you pedantic can. about you, it. You can just swap the order around. Exactly. So we're mashed together the 12 days of Christmas with uh, the gifts of Sutek. As everyone knows, Sutek, everyone's favorite uh, villainous, <laughs> villainous uh, evil god from the dawn of time and bestower of gifts mm-hmm. um, has this Christmas decided to bestow 12 of his gifts upon humanity, mm-hmm. upon his servants, um, though of course <laughs> uh, you know he needs no other, etc, etc etc, so anyway we're <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a bit of a this is a bit of a chaotically organised one but I think what we've done, because we, we haven't actually talked a huge amount about no, what we're we going to do not. here is um is we both picked uh, six gifts each, yes. mm-hmm. um the kind of gifts that I well I've taken it to mean things that we're grateful for, in, especially in terms of Doctor Who, not in general, hmm. um because everyone yes, knows yes. specifically yeah. to our favorite television show exactly because you know everyone knows that Sutek's gift of milk um was very popular <laughs> pyramids uh, of moo exactly you know um but so obviously Sutek has given many gifts to humanity over the years mm-hmm. um but the particular gifts we're concerned of this year is mm-hmm. his gifts about Doctor Who so I'm going to kick off with my gift they're so, not ranked so we're going to we're going to do this in the format the, the, yep. uh, the format is we're going to say I bring Sutek's gift of blank to all humanity and then we'll chit chat <laughs> about it I think yeah that is that is an excellent format um, <laughs> Uh, so again, the the, the gifts, Sutex gifts are not ranked. Nope. Um, they simply occur because, of course, you know, in some <laughs> ways, uh, Sutek is a god of chaos. In some ways, so he doesn't he doesn't uh, he doesn't accept. You but know, he num- but he is numbers. a very generous gift giver. He is my goodness. Twelve what, gifts. Two, Twelve gifts. Twelve <laughs> gifts. Twelve <laughs> gifts. So um, I bring. Uh, hang on. What was what was the phrase again? What, I bring Sutex gift, gift of, of all right, blank to all humanity. To all humanity. Okay. All right, so I or bring humanity, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, I bring Sutek's gift of half-price books in Saint Paul, Minnesota, to all humanity. Oh, interesting. Oh. So, how is this show related? Weird. Yeah. What a strange gift for Sutek to bring. Yes. Well, okay, I I'm gonna have to have uh, the 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 harbinger, um, if 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 you will, the uh, the the Egyptian. Uh, Egyptian slave, um, uh, a harbinger of this gift, um, is in fact our good friend Greg Schall. <laughs> hi, Greg. Um, hi, Greg. Uh, who, who texted me just the other day to tell me that someone, some lunatic, um, had basically sold pretty much all of their Big Finish um, CDs mm. to half-price books in St. Paul, Minnesota. Huh. 
Um, so when I was back, and this is this is a long story. I'll get to the point eventually. Um, so when I was back for Thanksgiving in my in my ex hometown of Minneapolis, I nipped over to St. Paul, and I picked up a bunch of big finishes, literally like quarter price. Wow. Um, and there's like ten feet of shelving, all devoted to big finishes. Huh. Um, and I never see big finish at, at no, half price. No. I, mean, I go to I go to half price books a lot. Um, and I ne- I always check the kind of audio shelves, and I never see big finish. So this is kind of an amazing, amazing landslide. Um, so for for our listener, Half Price Book is a a used book chain, I guess, across most of the United States. Erratically which, across the United yeah. States, yeah. It's not in every state. I think they're from Texas, aren't they originally? Uh, your your knowledge is vast superior to mine on this. I think they're from Texas originally, although I could be wrong. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I've just come back from a very arduous road trip uh, down to kind of midway through Oregon, which took me ages. But to accompany me on that wonderful road trip, I had a stack of unlistened to um, Big Finish stories. Excellent. Um, and it really, it's, it, I, I, it, I, sometimes I kind of balk. Well, I do balk at Big Finish sometimes because I do like to buy the actual CDs. Mm-hmm. Because actually, because my car, which is where mainly, mainly where I listen to those things, um, is not kind of you know equipped with any way to play anything digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, you just have vinyl then? You have like a turntable in the trunk or something? How, how do I you? Have a, I've, I have a turntable. Well, digitally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I'm like James Bond. I have like a, I have like a spe- No, it's it, you know what I mean. Like on the little with a pod. I can't. It's got no aux cable hookup mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow, Big Finish is really amazing. And actually, some of their new stuff is really awesome. And I had a really good time. So part of this, thank- I'm being thankful for actually Big Finish in general. Mm-hmm. Oh, They're- yes, indeed. Half, half price books is kind of a is kind of a, a, a is kind of excuse to say that um, they've done a really good job over the past twenty years, and we should be very very grateful to the way that they have nurtured our favorite program. Um, they have expanded its reach. They have given us uh, the Eighth Doctor in all of his amazingness. Paul McGann. They provided employment for aged actors who probably wouldn't have had good employment elsewhere. Um, <laughs> Well, and, um, you know, I'm, yeah, good on them, basically. Kind of a footnote on that. I just finished listening to Big Finish's Nick Briggs interview with Tom Baker, uh, Baker at 80. And oh, yeah. Tom says it gave him a new lease on life. It really yeah. improved his mood. It improved his outlook. He's working more than he's ever done before or has since Doctor Who. And he's just really happy. And his wife has noticed. And this was a few years ago, four or five years ago. But he, it was a very happy Tom Baker with Big Finish and the amount of work he's doing. So, yeah, it's really, really helped his career in these uh, sunset years. Yeah, and I think it's maybe, I, mean, I think we talked about this before on the podcast, but you know, the, and this is something my lovely wife finds hard to understand um, because you know audio drama is not a big thing in the states, which is why I was so amazed to see like literally ten feet of big finishes of mm-hmm. the half price books in St Paul. But it really allows you to tell kind of bigger stories and sequel stories, and it also because it because it can be done so relatively quickly, you can do a lot of kind of crazy whoish things without having to shell out and make a TV show. Right. Um, there was one of the ones I picked up with the Silurian Candidate, which is kind of a sequel to Warriors of the Deep. And it's just got a bunch of, you know, it's great. It's got Silurians running around. It's got like a Trump parody in it. Um, it's got, it's got, you know, I mean, Mel is just such a great companion in Big Finish. And she was awful on the television and 
etc 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 big finish is great and i i think that they are one of sutek's greatest gifts okay excellent gift from sutek thank you oh dark lord (laughs) (laughs) we we are not worthy to kiss your abase yourself your your your, like a like a miserable in like a what is it miserable insect ant abase yourself ant (laughs) ant yeah we're not fit to kiss your smoking footsteps Um, so I, I think I think it's your turn to, okay, to revel, so, revel in the glory of Sutex. So the second gift, I bring Sutex's gift of bubble wrap to all oh, humanity. Oh, good gift. So just from Doctor Who, one of the best, all-time best serials, the Ark in Space would not, it would not be the Ark in Space without the excessive use of bubble wrap both in the we're in larvae form but also in kenton moore as noah as he looks at his hand wrapped in bubble wrap in utter horror and disgust and his acting chops just kick in and without bubble wrap with more budget uh makeup and design it wouldn't be a testament to his acting ability. And bubble wrap has made such an impact on who that Pete Mateague in the last season of Doctor Who used bubble wrap as the central Absolutely. Uh, death delivering device in in Kerblam. So it's had this continuity from nineteen seventy five all the way to twenty eighteen of bubble wrap you know, having an impact on fandom and Doctor Who. And then how else are we going to ship Sutek's gift from one place to another without his gift of bubble wrap? His gift of bubble wrap. He gives he gives bubble wrap and bubble wrap gives back to us. Perfect. Yeah, I, I literally, I could not agree more. It makes having bubble wrap so much more fun than it would be if, like, <laughs> bubble wrap had not been used on Doc 2. Because whenever, whenever whenever I have bubble wrap, I'm, I do, from time to time, kind of wrap my hand in it. Yeah. And imagine that I'm... And obviously, I'm not green, but, you know, that I've, met, I've got a, you know, a... Um, I may be turning into a Wirren. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a natural thing. You want to put your... want to wrap your hand in there and just shudder. And just think of your own humanity and the loss of it by turning into a bubble-wrapped Wirren. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. That is a perfect gift. Thank you, Sutek. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, amazing. Um, the third gift. The third gift. Third gift of Sutek. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go a little bit serious here on my gifts. Um, I bring Sutek's gift of a female doctor to all Ooh. mankind. And I'm saying that because, you know, obviously it's been weirdly controversial over the last couple of years that the Doctor is now a woman. I mean, I think it's been, I mean, well, it's been deliberately signalled, I think, from really from all the way back to, you know, the curse of the, of the fatal death. Right. Uh, that, you know, the Doctor does not have to be male in, in terms of humans. But I just think it's, I think, I think Jodie has really kind of, you know, whatever you might think of the you know quality of the stories, and obviously on this podcast we've been critical of those from time to time. Um, it's always actually the central character of the Doctor is always a good one, always an exciting one, and the actor in that role I think always gives always gives all that they can. I'm just kind of grateful that. Doctor Who feels able to modernize itself and respond to what 
younger people think and want in drama. And it is such a wonderfully flexible format. I mean, I guess what I'm thankful for is this is this kind of great gift that the devisers of Doctor Who all the way back in the early 1960s gave to all of us, which is this insanely flexible and expansive format. And I guess that means that also encompasses my earlier gift of Big Finish, which is, you know, you can do whatever you want in Doctor Who. Um, and to constrain the character by, you know, an earthly definition of kind of sex and gender is is as ridiculous as to, you know, restrain the kind of, you know, amazing storytelling that the that the format can can encompass again. So to me it's it's to me it's, you know the, the 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 signal of a of a of a female doctor is really just a demonstration of what a of what a wonderful show this is and what a kind of giving and humane show it is. You know, it's never going to be horrible and grim and gritty. There's never never going to be a gritty reboot of Doctor Who. There's so much kind of horribleness in the world. And uh, I think Doctor Who isn't that. So that's my gift. Yeah, it's a sense of change. It, it, it is a show based on change. Ultimately, the character, the lead actor is always going to change. And it has reinvented itself so many times since 1963 that it's a, it's a natural, it's a no-brainer to cast a lead for, with a woman actor then just continue on with the uh, tradition of a middle-aged male actor. I think it's going to continue to change, and I don't really foresee Doctor Who going off the air anytime soon because it has been so responsive to change. If they had cast another traditional uh, actor in the role, perhaps there would be a, a kind of a, a waning of appeal, it would be a, appealing more to the traditional uh, fandom, but... This captures another set of fandom, and I think I uh, lamented uh, previously of Whitaker being, uh, the Doctor being in kind of a predictable tuxedo in the trailer, but looking on the internet, there's some, or especially on Twitter, there's some very uh, positive things to say. There's some very, uh, there's some groups that see representation in that. And that is, I think, one of the wonderful things that comes with keeping contemporary and keeping up with the times. Yeah. And I think exactly. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll probably come onto this when we do a cast talking about um, the trailers in the run up to New Year's Day, yeah. but you know, Doctor Who is kind of—it's—it's it's kind of a silly show in many ways, and the fact that that those two—that kind of that that two-parter over New Year's—is um, obviously you know it's based on James Bond, right. which is why the Doctor's in a tuxedo. Um, and of course, you know, as as you all know, um, in in the UK, you know, it's one of that's one of those traditional holiday things you do over New Year's is that there's a James Bond movie on. So you know, and it's the fact that Doctor Who kind of kind of absorb all the kind of nonsense of popular culture and kind of remix it and spit it back out again in its own way is just kind of exciting and thrilling and fun. And um, yeah, I'm fully, especially after my experience listening to to big finish driving backwards and forwards from Oregon is I, you know, I, I don't know how much, how many years I got left in my life. Um, but I'm going to be watching this show and listening to this show and reading about this show, you know, till my dying day. And that's, um, that's, uh, that's great. And I, I and I am literally grateful for that. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Good. Right. Next so, gift. Please. So the fourth gift of Sutek, I bring Sutek's gift of hats to all humanity. 
And hats have proven to be a, a central central uh, feature of Doctor Who, from the Hartnell Doctor with his uh, hmm. kind of his astrakhan, fleecy, hat. fluffy astrakhan hat, yeah. all the way to last season with Whitaker's Doctor wearing a fez. And oh, again, fez. coming back to Kerblam, and probably most importantly last season, Graham's hat, the big Graham's witch's hat, yes, Witchfinder's. Puritan hat. Puritan so yes. I think almost all the doctors have worn a hat of some sort. We have, of course, uh, Pertwee, who was hat-free. Not sure Capaldi wore a hat very often. Well, hang on. He didn't. I think in Spearhead from Space, he wore a floppy hat, didn't he? A little bit. Um, he might have. The picture is not coming to mind. But anyway, I mean, obviously, that period of the 70s, men didn't wear hats. So that's mm-hmm. fine. Yes, exactly. But we have the fedora that kind of the poet fedora that Tom Baker wore. We have the cricket hat that uh, Davison wore. We had, you know, the pork pie hat that McCoy wore. Colin Baker uh, wore a helmet as uh, as when he was playing a Galfrain guard. So Maxwell. So fezes, hats in Doctor Who have been a constant ongoing theme throughout. And you think of franchises that are associated with hats, and I can think of basically two off the top of my head. You have Doctor Who and Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. What else? You know, right. Star Wars isn't known for hats. Right. Uh, Star Trek definitely isn't known for hats. Uh, the sci-fi franchises, if you're looking for hats, it's Doctor Who. And yeah, hats are pretty sure. cool. Yeah. Um, I've just looked on the internet, and put, we did, he tried on a hat. The third doctor tried on a hat when he was in the, the cottage, Ashbury's uh, cottage hospital, trying on his costume. He didn't didn't stick. Um, but the other image I have of him wearing a hat is when he disguises himself as a milkman in um, in, in Green Death. So hats. I, I take it back. Capaldi did wear a hat in Thin Ice. He was wearing a, a top hat. He was uh, perfect. He was. He, he was being he, a capitalist. Yep. He was just he, he was, was just slave being... owner of some kind. <laughs> right. Yes. He was just blending right in. So he was blending in. Yeah. Hats in Doctor Who. Uh, I'm I'm hoping we'll see the Whitaker Doctor in more hats in Series Twelve coming up. Perfect. Absolutely. Wonderful. Um. Uh, Fifth gift. The, the fifth gift. So as I bring. So this is the fifth gift. I bring suit, and this is actually aligned to one of your well, one of your earlier gifts. Huh. Um, I bring suitors suitex gifts of having no budget because we're made by the BBC <laughs> to all humanity. So you obviously you reference bubble wrap, which was a kind of a genius a genius piece. Um, my I think maybe my gifts are more kind of more broad brush, but. I think what I wanted to point out is just the sheer creativity of this show mm. um, and how... I, what, what was I watching on the plane when I flew back from Minnesota? Oh, yeah, one of those new Fast and Furious movies. Mm-hmm. You know, and they just pour money into this junk and everything explodes and cars jump off things and Range Rovers explode and fall off cliffs and blah, 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 blah. Um, everyone bemoans the fact that Doctor Who ha- had no money because it's made by the BBC. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, glory days of the seventies when the, the entire country had no money. Um, you know, monsters are made out of bubble wrap, uh, fiberglass. The slither is played by slither. Sorry, is played by a man in a sack, mm-hmm. um, sprayed green. But that just makes everybody be more creative, and the creativity that spun off the show because people are forced to do the best they can with the lowest amount of money, that's what makes things good. 
I've worked for organizations that have that have have had way too much money and that makes things <laughs> bad and actually what makes things good and well thought out and clever and incisive and innovative is being short of money and so I think we should celebrate the fact that from time to time the brick walls of the underground lair of the dinosaur stealing people in Invasion <laughs> of the Dinosaurs from time to time those brick walls do wobble because they're not actually brick walls they're just they're just bits of cloth uh, I think we should celebrate that because it's the creativity of having to work to a budget and what could be more human and what could be more normal and what could be more relatable than having a budget for something and you've got to stick to that budget and you've got to make it work for that budget I don't know if you encounter this in the art world but certainly in the computer engineering world uh, the budget is one of the constraints you work in, and that is uh, where innovation happens. It's where absolutely you you either have a budget and memory, you have a budget and time, and if it's the sky's the limit, anything goes. You're not going to wind up with something good in a timely manner. You, you're absolutely. just going to keep you're going to keep trying and experimenting, and sometimes these constraints, or often these constraints, are what makes something brilliant it's the constraints is what makes something brilliant exactly and and when you have an unlimited amount of money to spend on something well it's the cliche you know when everything um uh when the only tool you have is a big pile of money then everything looks like every problem looks like it could be solved by spending a big pile of money on it. Right. Um, like, you know, just with the only two, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And as I said, I think we've both been involved in businesses over the years um, where there's been too much money around, mm -hmm. um, or certainly I have. And that makes, makes people lazy and it, it gives you a bad product because mm -hmm. all you know you can make a mistake and all you've got to do is spend a bit more money on that mistake goes away you don't do your best work up front because you can always chuck it you always chuck it in the trash and start again mm -hmm. and i think you know if you look at axons with bulgy eyes and daleks with people running around with their little feet underneath moving them along um, like Drashic puppets. I mean, that's Drashic Drashic puppets. The Drashics are amazing. Again, I was I was did watch the whole thing, but I was just noodling around on YouTube and I was watching the Drashics. You know, when Drashics when they leap out of the swamp and they kind of look around. Mm -hmm. That's horrific and scary and awesome. And their mouths are like made out of dog skulls. <laughs> it's just so Jack Russell skulls, I think, as far as I remember. That's so amazing. And thank goodness. Thank goodness for low budgets. And even in the modern day, I, I, I'm reminded Still of Rachel. low budgets. Yeah, I'm reminded of Rachel Talloway's uh, anecdote where she was saying that when Capaldi's hand dissolves in Heaven Sent, that's a bath bomb. It's just, it's the same type of material. It's a It's a practical effect that can be done cheaply through creativity rather than this heavily uh, produced uh, you know computer animation or some uh, really yeah. fancy special effect it's it's a pretty simple practical effect that uh, that extends the budget and highlights the creativity of this massive body of creative people uh, associated with the BBC and working at the BBC to make our favorite show 
And again, you know, I, I, I'm not doing down practical special effects people from the United States, but I think, um, you know, the, the history of special effects is particularly practical special effects in the UK and the kind of genius of those practitioners. Uh, a lot of it is to do with the BBC being you know, a publicly funded body, but also a lot of that is to do with the fact that the BBC is a publicly funded body that has literally no money. Um, or, you know, compared to, you know, studios of equal output elsewhere in the world, they, you know, they work on kind of half the budget. And I think um, that's why we're so good at it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This right, sixth gift. gift. Sixth gift of Sutek is... I bring Sutek's gift of monsters to all oh, humanity. Nice one. And specifically, perhaps, the ones that aren't really the Dalek level of monsters, but more of, oh, I don't know, the the Jelgard level of monster or oh, Kroll God. or even even the Pating or Adipose. <laughs> these are these are monsters that are uniquely associated, uniquely associated with Doctor Who and especially at least for who fans of our age it's the monsters that aren't the cybermen that aren't the daleks that we remember probably more fondly than anything else like the rubber dinosaurs in the invasion of the dinosaurs or the scarrison in terror of the zygons or the mandrel in nightmare in eden those are the type of monsters that make us smile as who fans uh, it's not the marquee marquee baddies such as the daleks and I think that you're, you're absolutely right. I think actually one of the exciting things about those kind of single issue monsters is that is, is because they're sort of relatively unsuccessful, they don't really happen again. Um, uh, um, you know, Vardens and Nymons and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I guess the Nymons sort of came sort back. Sort of. So they are, they're kind of single, you know, kind of one and done monsters, mm-hmm. um, the Kraals. But that actually then makes them you know, more fruitful for kind of imagination than your, than your kind of regular monsters. You know, your Daleks and your Cyber and your Sontarans, you know, they accrete all this kind of continuity and kind of story and mm-hmm. they have to, then they then have to behave in a particular kind of way. And they've got, you know, they're, they're, they have a creator and an origin story. They're right. like the Joker or something in Batman. They have to, they have to have come from somewhere. But, you know, your Vardens or your Nymon, it's like, bam, here's a monster. Bam, the monster's gone again. Mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of makes them like, wow, I wonder. What, and then, which then makes you think, well, where did the Vardens come from? Like, right. why do they have two forms? One kind of boringly military people and the other kind of uh, shimmery tinfoil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why do the why do the mandrels have those big kind of flares uh-huh. on their legs? Or Arado um, from Creature of the Pit. You know, exactly. that's a monster that's probably never going to return to Doctor Who. Never but, return. but the the body of work is so much richer because we have an Arado. We have Kroll. Yeah, I would like to see the return of Ogrons. I think Ogrons are due oh for a return. Ogrons need to come back. But yep. just to have them within the history and within the past adventures of the doctor i think enriches uh, enriches the uh, mythology or enriches the the storyline in ways that other sci-fi vehicles may not have or or say even the lord of the rings you're not going to have that diversity of monsters in something like a tolkien based no because it makes it makes the universe huge i mean if you think of like the star trek universe where there's you know 
there's some aliens mm-hmm. um and they've all got wrinkly foreheads and you know there's like maybe six different kinds right the, you know, doctor who doctor who universe where there's like a zillion crazy stupid like unreasonably badly <laughs> realized aliens right um and you just you really do get the impression of kind of an infinite an, you know an infinite universe but an inf- a, a universe of mm-hmm. of kind of fast and an unknowable size right. and filled with kind of just weird and wonderful stuff that could happen at any time yeah and it's continued on into the revitalized uh, 21st century who just like the slovene for example that is a monster uh, that really i think harkens back to kind of the man in the rubber suit type monster but a little bit different than uh something like the zygons or the draconians or something it, it's a man in a rubber suit it's an actor in a rubber suit but it's a little you know each has their degree of success some are more successful than other but it, it yeah. really expands uh ex- expands the universe and I think also, I'm just thinking about the Slovene for a second, it also anchors, you know, the Slovene now take us back to kind of, you know, the mists lost a decade and a half ago, 2005, basically. Yeah. You know, they're mm-hmm. like, they're now an historic monster. They're like, you know, <laughs> True. they're like, they're like in, in 1979 thinking about the Vord or something. Mm-hmm. They're, a, they're a long time ago. They're right. like monsters from years in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, and they're, they're never going to come back because they were kind of no good, to be honest. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. the body of Doctor Who, the universe, the Hooniverse is better because we have it is. have this wide variety of monsters. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's go on to, what are we, at? Number, number seven. Yes. So I bring Sutex. I bring Sutek's gift of action figures <laughs> to all humanity. Very, very excited to see on Twitter that there's a whole going to be a whole new wave of action figures. You're kidding me. Um, yeah, there is. There's going to be there's going to be a, a tuxedo doctor. There's going to be uh, there's going to be a Graham uh, with 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 a hat. Well, I, if they don't if they don't do a customizable Graham um, with a hat. Uh, hang on, I've actually forgotten which which ones. I know there's going to be Graham, and I know there's going to be a doctor in a tuxedo. Um, anyway, the great thing about Doctor Who, I mean, I nearly, you know, I should have put down, I'm grateful for Doctor Who's gift of Weetabix, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I mean, the whole thing about Doctor Who is it allows you to kind of relax and be, I don't know, I guess everyone's a kid nowadays, but, you know, just kind of enjoy things because they're enjoyable. And to have like a whole bunch of new figures to play with. I mean, I do. I mean, I have a Jody figure that I got at Gallifrey One last year, and to imagine there's going to be there's going to be like an action figure of 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 Bradley whatever he's Bradley Wal Bradley Walsh <laughs> <laughs> that you can play with, um, who then might very well be customized to like have a Puritan hat. It's just crazy and so good and funny and it amuses me to imagine that, you know, you can get an action figure of Bradley Walsh. And it just, again, it's, it's the, the show is endlessly giving in terms of kind of making me laugh and making me realize that, you know, you really shouldn't take things that seriously in life. <laughs> um, and even though, you know, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, um, <laughs> at least I can play with my Bradley Walsh figure when I feel like it. <laughs> Well, I, growing up, action figures was all about Star Wars for me. And that Ooh. was one of the things I really lamented as 
you know, as a preteen watching Doctor Who, as there wasn't really any good Doctor Who action figures. There wasn't. There wasn't. There wasn't a Tom Baker to accompany Luke Skywalker on adventures back then, and that would have yeah. been fantastic. And I think it's. I think in the society that we live in, which is very heavily, culture is heavily influenced by television, having a little action figure that can play play along with for children it helps their imagination. I did re- reenact quite a bit of Star Wars with Star Wars figures and had further adventures with these, uh, mostly R2-D2 and C-3PO because, frankly, the humans were boring, but I did take the droids out for their own adventures. Yeah. I tell you, I, I, I've got it up here. So there, there, there's going to be a Graham, there's going to be Yaz, and there's going to be the other one, Ryan. 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 <laughs> yeah, the other one. And there's going to be Tuxedo Doctor, and they'll probably re-release, re-release a, a Jadoon again, I yeah. think, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Any classic? No, it just says um, Graham, Ryan, and Yaz, 5.5-inch mm-hmm. scale figures. Did Bill ever get, did Pearl Mackey ever get an action figure, and did Bill get one? Yeah. Is there, yeah, I have is there a Nardo yeah. one? There is an Anado one. That's oh. a shame. Um, but my uh, yeah, my Pearl Mackie. I have my Pearl Mackie out on the shelves right now. She's that's a great figure actually. Mm. It looks really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 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 well. I guess it's out of its box now. But I'm thinking about taking the box with me when I meet Pearl Mackie at Gallery One. Oh, that's next right. Year. She is. She's one of the headline guests. Going to be in L.A. Yeah, I, I doubt that I actually get to meet her because she'll be swamped by. Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably the picture line. Yeah, that's true. But it's like, can I sign? Can I sign the box for me? I don't know. Um, Who knows their rules there? Exactly. Exactly. We still need a list Sladen one. We still need a classic series twelve, series thirteen, Elizabeth Sladen. Yeah, they've really got to do that. Um, you know, and I think we've had this conversation yes, before. I yes. mean, you know, your Liz was so ill, so mm-hmm. she really wasn't able to to kind of get herself scanned properly well um, they didn't scan the trashigs so <laughs> they didn't scan the trashigs, and they didn't scan ian martyr and he's got his own action that's true true now mm-hmm. um so you know we got to get it's important i really do think it's kind of important to have those classic lineups mm-hmm. if i was character options if i was an eccentric billionaire i'd buy character options and i'd make them do those um just so that everybody could have those it's always so frustrating for me when i go into kind of american comic shops or popular culture stores and there's just like the most obscure stupid like marvel characters got like an action figure <laughs> well, like, like no this, one's ever heard of that's this with star wars especially like star wars exactly exactly and i guess we kind of went down the route on that one i should have but i'm i'm thankful sutek's gift of destroyed cassandra <laughs> um, which was the, the kind of nadir or unpossessed toby which were the two, I think, Nadia's of the character option lines in the um, in the noughties. But anyway, yeah. yeah, unpossessed Toby, Toby without the paint job. Um, I think we're on to our next uh, our next gift. Gift number eight. I bring Sutek's gift of companions to oh, all lovely. humanity. Right. And as Russell Davis has pointed out, this is not Doctor Who's show, despite the Doctor being the titular character. It's the story of the companions. We see the universe through the companions' eyes from Ian and Barbara all the way to Graham, Yaz, and Ryan. It is the companions that we identify, well, at least I identify with, ever ever more so than the Doctor. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that was the genius of one of the geniuses of RTD is to recognize that it's the companion story. Mm -hmm. And again, that played to his strength mm -hmm. as a writer, but also gave us like an incredible reinvention of the kind of richness of this show by, OK, these are the people who are having an adventure. Mm -hmm. And actually it takes it back to 1963 when it was, you know, Ian and Barbara were, 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 the, were you know, the protagonists, the characters. Right. And Doctor Who was the thing that happened to them right. rather than the other way around. Right. Um, and, you know, the Doctor is... And I think in some from time to time, I think particularly during the Moffat era, era I think we've kind of lost that a little bit. I think, I think maybe Moffat was kind of lost that clarity um cl i'm use clarity clara <laughs> clarity um in understanding the you know that the, we're interested in the in the companions mm -hmm. not in what and what they do rather than what you know, the effect the companions have on the doctor yeah um, but yes i absolutely agree in moffat's defense i think he was trying to explore what would happen if a companion decided to be the doctor this is I think perhaps exploring what would have happened with the Cartmill master plan if Ace became a Time Lord who was brought to Gallifrey to go to the Academy. And the, the whole focus on companions more or less, uh, I think, was rejiggered under Andrew Cartmill. So this is, this is the bridge, I think, between 21st Century Who and then the latter part of 20th Century Who is the change of focus on the companion where we where we saw that you know in the, in the Cartmill era it was very focused on Ace and what Ace was experiencing and what Ace's fears were and that that has continued on especially like with companions like Amy Pond where it's Amy's Amy's life the whole Matt Smith doctor focuses and revolves around for the most part about Amy's family both you know her and Rory but then also River Song. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I mean, I think I, I think it's the, I, I guess I've been clear about this in the past, but I mean, the whole Clara Oswald thing, that's where it kind of fell apart right. for me, where, you know, the companion becomes a kind of weird adjunct. As you've said, you know, something to do with the Doctor. I, anyway, mm -hmm. let's not go there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think the companions, I mean, that's, it's it makes you feel, mm -hmm. makes, you, makes you feel it. And they define yeah. the, each era of the Doctor. The Doctor may be very, very, have a longer tenure than some companions, but uh, you look at the Hartnell era and you have the Barbara and Ian era and then you have the Stephen Taylor era. Yeah. And then you yeah. have uh, Ben and Polly, which is the bridge that is onto Troughton. And then second episode of Troughton, you pick up Jamie McCrimmon and you can't imagine the second doctor Troughton without uh, Fraser Hines. It's that pairing is iconic for that time period. And just throughout Doctor Who, we have these classic uh, pairings that you can't really imagine the doctor without his or her friends. And I think actually for me, it's the way that I, you know, obviously a lot of fans, you know, we like to uh, organize the show by kind of seasons and by doctors, mm -hmm. actually organize it by, or, you know, by, or by showrunners or producers or writers or script editors or whatever. I mean, the, mentally in my head, I tend to organize the show by companions. Uh-huh. And it's okay, there's those companions, and then, you know, then we switch to just Shara Jane, and now it's Romana 1, and now it's Romana 2, right. and now it's all the Adricks and their friends, you know, it's, 
Um, you know, it's and that's that's how I meant. That's how I mentally organised the show. Yeah. Um, so the companions are really important. Yeah. They're really important. Okay. Good. So number nine, aren't we? Number nine. Goodness gracious. Well, I bring Sutek's gift of ruffled shirts <sighs> to all mankind. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, obviously the 70s is my kind of key era for Doctor Who. And I know I've said this before, only two people were ever able to like wear a ruffled shirt um, and make <laughs> it look good. Jimi Hendrix is one of them. And the other one was John Pertwee as Doctor Who. Prince? Um, uh, no, <laughs> no, not, no. not Prince. Yeah, Prince, uh, Prince is just trying to be Jimi Hendrix or John mm. Pertwee, I suppose. Um <laughs> no, he's, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's the originality of it, I uh, think, really. I uh-huh. mean, Prince is, uh, Prince is being referential. Um, you true, know, he's referring true. He's to, re- yeah, yeah. He's being Hendrix, is what he's being, um, or Pertwee. Um, anyway. He's being Pertwee. Um, he was, he he's was being, big, he's big. He's, he's trying to be John Pertwee, exactly. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> down to um, the tattoo, down to the down, anchor tattoo. Exactly, exactly. He just, he just um, styled it into his uh, Prince sign. It's a very, very stylish show and always has been stylish. And I think this fits a little bit into why I thought of this was when I was thinking about the low budget thing. It's it's a stylish show. And the Doctor and his companions, all her companions, um, have always been super styling. And Sarah Jane's romper suit with the stars, you know, where she looks like Andy Pandy. Anything that Tom Baker wore, anything that, that you know, any any of the, the, the velvet smoking jackets that John Pertwee war it's a fashionable show and i think it always looks good they always dress well even down to colin baker uh i just my that's probably i mean the 80s i i hated fashion in the 80s anyway to mm-hmm. be honest um but in the 60s and the 70s let's skate over the 80s well with, uh, with and the, yeah the, with with colin baker with the six doctors jacket i i'm convinced it's not a failure of the jacket i think it's a failure of the hairstyle if you would have styled oh. Colin Baker's hair in more of a pompadour, less of that angry 80s frizzled uh, perm, bad perm hair, and just went more, maybe more of a classic 1800, you know, uh, Victorian style men's hairstyle, I think he would have been able to pull off that jacket. The, the, the jacket is only, it, it's the lightning rod, but it's, it's everything else. I think it's the, the the portrayal, the shortness of his tenure, and that angry, frizzy perm that really doesn't serve Colin Baker as well. And when you true, true. and when you when you hear him in Big Finish, or, you know, going back to Big Finish, yeah, also true. At least I still see him in the mind's eye wearing that jacket. But I I see the hair more. Uh, more natural where he doesn't have an 80s perm more like what his hair hair was when he wasn't before the 1980s some of his roles in the 1970s right right when he's got that amazing mustache yeah that is the 1980s with that perm it's more of the perm hair than the jacket yeah and i think yes exactly and i think uh, you know it's i'm never gonna like 80s style (laughs) i didn't like 80s style when i was in the 80s and I wasn't particularly stylish in the eighties either, but it's you know as I said, if you go back to my gift, it's a it's a stylish mm-hmm. show and it looks good, and this goes back to the low budget thing. It's you know people are really thinking about how to make stuff look good, not spending mm-hmm. a huge amount of money, and that's our favorite show basically. 
I think where the 80s went wrong is with JNT doing uniforms. Yep. And if the companions had been able to change clothes and maybe uh, blend in with the 1980s a little better rather than Keegan being stuck in a stewardess outfit for so long. And when when uh, Keegan was able to switch into 1980s clothes, she looked better for it. Yep. And I think it was an abandonment of style where, where, where the failure was in the 1980s. True, true. I agree. No, I agree. Which I think, you know, an abandonment of style was kind of 1980s in general, <laughs> to be honest. And and it, again, had, it had its moments. It had its moments, I suppose it did, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, Number uh, 10. Next? It is me. You, okay. I bring Sutek's gift of music to all humanity, especially incidental music. We've had the great Dudley Simpson immediately comes to mind, but also we've had the stock music that we've brought in. We've had Jeffrey Burgone. We've had uh, Carrie Blyton. And in in the modern era, we had uh, Murray Gold and now Sagan Akinola. All of them have brought their own musical sense combined with the director and producer to the show. And it's, I mean, the cliche is this is a soundtrack of our childhood. That's a soundtrack of our lives. These musical interludes, these bits of music, even with Britney Spears is toxic. It permeates into Doctor Who that to me, the incidental music is just as important as the script, as the actors. It helps tell the story, and you identify the era, the story, the mood by the music that's going on. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. The the <laughs> I again um, listening to all these big finishes that I was listening to. The clever way that they kind of reference the the appropriate incidental music is very very important. You know, setting the uh, it's you know it doesn't sound like a Pertwee story unless there's Pertwee style music going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, it is it's fifty getting on for sixty years of just incredible richness of of music, and you know, mm-hmm. even down to Delia Derbyshire being this astoundingly kind of you know doomed figure, doomed uh, innovator in electronic music um, from the very very beginning. Um, Doctor Who's been a it's been a it's been an innovator in incidental music, and again because of a low budget, it's had to innovate really really smartly around music. And I think you know even the you know having the same composer for you know the majority of New Who, you got to take your hat mm-hmm. off to Murray Gold. Um, yeah, no, it's it's yeah, I agree. I'm I'm not so much of a music fan as you are, obviously. I'm not obviously, but mm-hmm. I'm not. But yes, the music is an integral part of the show. And just kind of going off what you mentioned with Dila Durisher, with the whole radiophonic workshop that took over the incidental music, you know, Patty yeah. Kingsland, um, even Kef McCulloch. Kef McCulloch music is signature of that time of Doctor Who and it all fits together. You know, Malcolm Clark with the Sea Devils. The music for me is so important to Doctor Who. And I just love it so much, especially uh, Dudley Simpson's right. Radiophonic Workshop music. To me, Sutek could not have brought a better gift. And uh, my, I, I've said it many times before, my favorite part of Star Wars 
is the soundtrack. I think my favorite part of Doctor Who may be the incidental music. Wow, that's strong words, strong words, but considered words. And the music is, uh, it's, it not only tells you how to feel, like all instrumental music, like gives you a clue on how to feel at any particular point, mm -hmm. but actually because it is this amazing historical document, it also actually tells you where you are in time. Yes. You know, you can hear that kind of Dudley Simpson oboe bassoon. What's that <laughs> thing that makes the sound? Contrabassoon? Well, like that, you can, and I'm like, and you know, wow, there I am. You know, exactly. Timpanies exactly. and stuff, Wonderful. everything, you know. Um, I, I'm, Eleven, I'm, I'm you're on, on your my, final one. My last gift, my last penultimate gift. Well, this is one that one that's kind of, you know, kind of my own interests. Uh, but I bring Sutek's gift of Doctor Who in comic book form Ooh. to all humanity. I just was very, very lucky the other day to be able to buy a page from uh, Mike Mick McMahon's work in Doctor Who Monthly. Um, Mick McMahon is one of Britain's greatest comic book artists, in my opinion. A man kind of driven by certain demons in his life um, and uh, only worked on one strip for uh, for Doctor Who magazine, a, a strip called Junkyard Demon, um, which has become one of the greatest of the Doctor Who magazine strips. And it's just amazing and wonderful. And I love it. And I was very pleased to be able to acquire one of those pages just the other day. And it made me think, again, pretty much as I was thinking about the whole big, big finish thing, is, you know, this is such a great, flexible format, and Doctor Who works just as well in terms of comic strips as it does in any other medium that it's in. And thinking about Scott Gray's run with Martin Garrity, and I, I'm lucky enough to own some Martin Garrity pages mm -hmm. from stories written by Scott Gray, and it's, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, I mean, so, so, some of those stories with the Eighth Doctor in the in the kind of nineteen late nineteen nineties and two thousands, mm -hmm. um, with that illustrating partnership, with that writing and illustrating partnership, that's actually some of the greatest stories in my mind that have been told in Doctor Who. The the the, the death of Ace, uh, the arrival of the Ninth Doctor. It's just just absolutely wonderful and classic and amazing and and weird for me because you know as a, you as everyone probably notices you know it's it's mainly the 1970s that gets me with doctor who right. but you uh, the uh, the doctor who comic strip in the in the in the in the, this is act this is in the era of, of mick mcmahon's work but the garrity scott gray run on doctor who in the in the in the magazine in uh late 90s 2000s is astounding and uh it's you know i was obviously very much older then but it kind of makes me feel just as hard as the stuff from the 70s mm -hmm. and we have the comics to to thank for uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg but without the comic strips marvel would have never started doctor who weekly which now is doctor who monthly it's a that's true very long running mouthpiece uh, advocate for the show uh, it's had its uh, ups and downs but it, the comic has always been the the, the the serial comic serial has always been part of the magazine um, early days, we had a lot of ancillary scripts, which are ancillary comics, which didn't necessarily feature the Doctor. But as as it moved into the monthly format, it's settled down into having a contemporary Doctor comic serial that always would tell a story too big for television. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know I, I, it's been said, uh, at least I've read. Comic strips aren't cheap to make. No. Um, I mean, they're pretty cheap, but I mean, a magazine is sort of cheaper, if you see what I mean. But, you know, it's again, it's hats off to um, 
to the editors and the publishers of Doctor Who magazine that they'd kept this comic strip running mm-hmm. and where they could have easily have, have cut it um, and saved themselves a bit of money and a bit of time and a bit of effort. Yep. But they kept it going and it has some of the richest and most engaging uh, storytelling in Doctor Who has come from that comic strip. It has. So, yes. All right. So for right. Sutek's final gift, I bring Sutek's gift of VHS cassettes ah. to all <laughs> humanity. And the reason for this, I think without the uh, boom in the home video market that came in the late 70s, early 1980s, we would have far more of our favorite television show wiped because there was no aftermarket consideration for selling it. Right. And if VHS would have been available in the 1960s, I doubt we would have any missing Doctor Who, for example. But it's that home video market that I think ultimately helped save and uh, find value for our favorite show for repeats in 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 and beyond and then with the dvds and the love and care of the doctor who restoration team expanding expanding with uh, behind the scenes uh, footage with documentaries of the making of and that's been carried on now into the blu-ray box sets just home media is doctor who's especially for uh doctor who that you don't see on original airing right that is the experience of doctor who for many for the vast majority of fans it's that home media and that home media started with the video cassette and that home media is continuing with with the with the blu-ray sets um and I, yes, you know yes. and i think even though we're supposed to be streaming everything nowadays um, I think mm-hmm. there's still, you know, Doctor Who still recognizes that there's a value in physical media, and I love, I love physical media. Um, so um, I'm going to agree with you that that VHS. I still have all the. I th- I got rid of all my VHS tapes, uh-huh. but I kept all the sleeve. I kept all the sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I still have those. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I don't I've have moved the tapes. moved uh, probably as much as you, but not as far as you. So I've kept a hold of all my VHS, and they're. Oh, up very in, cool. Up in the uh, garage attic. Uh, I don't know what I'll ever do with them. And, of course, the U.S., uh, the paper paperboard copies weren't ever as nice as the sleeves and the uh, little booklets that came in for the official U.K. releases. But now if, now I, I have this problem again. I have, I have a lot of my off-the-air, off of KTCA and St. Paul, Minneapolis recordings before even the home market for VHS cassettes came and after. So I have uh, off the air, I have commercial releases for most of the VHS and then a complete run of DVDs and now Blu-ray box sets. And at some point, it's, it's, it is junk, it is clutter, but I have a little bit of nostalgia, I think. And, and just the fact that these were wiped at one time, it's sort of like, uh, I got to keep, what if I have the last copy of this type Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And again, you know, I mean, if you can't be nostalgic for things and be nostalgic through the, through the retention of objects, like you know, come on, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not with Marie Kondo on this one. <laughs> it's like you know, if things spark joy, you should keep them. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if they spark joy. It's, it's just, it's a part <laughs> of spark anxiety. It's a, it's a. Anxiety in a Doctor Who fan, I think, is uh, goes hand in hand, especially those uh, who saw the end or the suspension in the 80s and then the end of Doctor Who in 1989. 
And uh, knowing that 97 episodes are missing vi- visuals from the archive, it, right. it, there is a little bit of anxiety. Uh, it just, just most recently with the recovery of the Web of Fear, uh, Phil Morris says episode three went walkies for him. So right. even, even in this modern day and age, things happen. Yeah, things can still go missing. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? We'll ever know what really happened to that episode. But yeah, you can find it and you can lose it again just as quickly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, there you go. Twelve gifts. With the twelve gifts. What a generous <laughs> god from the... Osirens or ancient Beginning Egypt. of <laughs> ancient evil god he is. <laughs> um, cool. Okay. It's the beginning of Christmas, everybody. All right. And uh, next time, I think it's Chimes of Midnight, right? I think we're going to try and do the Chimes of Midnight. Ooh, spooky, spooky Christmas ghost tale for Christmas. Yes. Perfect. 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 Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 135 of the Metabilis 2 podcast. I have been counting down Sutek's gift with Ben. And I have been uh, admiring Sutek's marvelous gifts to all humanity with David. Excellent. Goodbye. Goodbye.